This is the Entrepreneurs vs. Coronavirus podcast with your host, Ryan Kononoff. So what do you do when COVID-19 disrupts the global economy? Unemployment is at the highest it's ever been. Almost everyone can say they felt some level of financial impact and you run an organization whose funding is entirely dependent on an economy that has left people and organizations with something to give back. Well, that's exactly what Dan Murray, CEO of Opportunity International Canada, faced this spring as COVID-19 began to disrupt businesses and commerce as we knew it here in Canada. Opportunity International Canada is a microfinance not-for-profit with a simple mission to empower those living in poverty to transform their lives and their communities. In this next interview, Dan shares how Opportunity has had to pivot in order to continue to raise funds to support the needs around them in the developing world in places where people don't live paycheck to paycheck, but rather often day to day. What's remarkable about Dan's story is the fact that they were already a remote company with staff spread out from coast to coast, and yet, like everyone else, they had to find ways to adapt their organization to the changing world around them. Dan talks about their strategy for ensuring his people were better connected to each other in this unprecedented time to how his organization is supporting the mental health of his people too. Dan shares how he challenged his team to find a way to press on with innovation. And the result? Running the largest events they've ever run, with the most attendance they've ever had, with the widest reach across the country. Dan also shares a few stories of how COVID has impacted the lives of their microfinance customers in places like the Dominican Republic, and how Opportunity is stepping up to ensure there are resources available today, in arguably the greatest time of need to those that need them. One more thing that I need to say before we jump in is that this next interview is a special one for us at ClearBridge because Opportunity International is our partner in the one-to-many micro-lending initiative that we launched in November of 2019. And you can learn more about that at clearbridge.ca forward slash one-to-many. And so it goes without saying that we've been working closely with Opportunity over the past few months as we continue to invest in each other to ensure operational stability, support for each other, and success on our individual missions. And so without further ado, let's jump in and learn more about Dan's story with Opportunity International Canada. Dan, welcome to the Entrepreneurs versus Coronavirus podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for, for joining me today. For those that haven't heard about Opportunity International, uh, maybe let's start there. Tell us a little bit about Opportunity, what you do, who does the organization serve? How many people do you have? Just give us a little bit of uh, an introduction that way. Sure. Well, Opportunity International is an organization that's coming up on its 50th anniversary, actually, next year. It was founded in 1971. There was actually sort of a Canadian-American uh, nexus that did it. There was a fellow that was working in Colombia. He was working you know, with uh, poor people in the country. And a lot of the charity work was grant-based, but he felt that it was just not sustainable. You always have to keep coming back for more. And he came up with the idea of a, of a small loan to a farmer so he could buy a cow, repay the loan, and move from there. And it, it was just an amazing concept that really caught on. He was back in the U.S. sharing this, caught the attention of a, a kind of a Wall Street banker who suddenly felt that he'd found his life mission. And so he brought the discipline of banking, if you like, 
I sort of call it the, the discipline of a banker with the heart of an NGO. And the concept is really quite simple. And it's financial inclusion with dignity and training for people in the world who are living in poverty, um, but have an idea, they're entrepreneurs in their own right, but they simply are excluded from accessing financial services of any kind. And, you know, can you imagine trying to run your own business here without access to a revolving line of credit or a loan here and there? But banking services, loans, uh, savings, insurance, these things were simply not available to the poorest. And uh, so the idea was microfinance. How do you bring financial services as well as training to people who didn't have access to it so they could basically create their own workspace and uh, provide for their families? So that, that's a simple concept. Opportunity International Canada has been around for about 21 years. Uh, we started in 98, 99, and um, we're part of a global movement. There's five countries, the US, Germany, Australia, UK, and Canada, that together are working in about uh, 22 countries around the world. And our vision is really a world in which all people have the opportunity to achieve a life free from poverty with dignity and purpose. And we accomplish that by providing financial tools and training access to things like loans and savings and insurance to empower people living in poverty to transform their lives and their children's futures and in fact, entire communities. Fantastic. And so in a nutshell, if I can simplify that, it's this idea of, of a financial institution or a bank or an insurance uh, agency to, to the poor. Yeah, there's a classic book out there called Bankers to the Poor, written by Mohamed Yunus, who won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize for um, for his work in microfinance in Bangladesh. And it's a, I recommend the book. It's, I read it uh, summer before I joined Opportunity, just to immerse myself a bit. But uh, really, it, it can be a small loan. I mean, I've heard amazing stories of a $10 loan uh, being the beginning of an amazing journey where an entrepreneur, she'll invest that, make some sales, repay the loan, take out a bit more, grow her business, and just move from there. And it's the empowerment and the dignity. I mean, for me, it, it really speaks to dignity and empowerment. You know, if you think about coming to somebody and asking for food so you can feed your family, I mean, if you have to do that to survive, you do whatever you have to do, right? But if you can gain access to, you know, a small loan so that you can start or grow your own business and pay the loan back, generate enough revenue to feed your family and to invest a bit back in the business so that it keeps growing, you suddenly have power over your future. And so you multiply that by millions and it has just an incredible impact uh, at a global level. And speaking specifically about uh, Canada here, how large is your team and, and where are you based out of here in Canada? Yeah, well, the Canadian operation uh, a couple of years ago actually went completely virtual. So um, we shut down the one office we did have in Toronto because only about three of the then 10 to 12 staff uh, were using that office. Our team is distributed across the country. There are 14 of us at the moment, so we're a fairly lean and mean team. Uh, we have staff from Eastern Ontario all the way to Victoria and working in a variety of roles from fundraising to you know, back, back office operations and program design and implementation and monitoring. So you were you were ahead of the curve as far as as far as the whole transition to remote operations goes. You no, know, it's kind of funny. A, a few of my colleagues were were joking a bit. We're we're sort of becoming quite tired of the the words unprecedented and pivot. But you know, this truly <laughs> was an unprecedented kind of event that all of us have encountered, and everyone was forced to pivot. 
uh, and we've had to pivot on so many levels, but the one area we didn't really have to pivot is our, you know, regular operations because we've been, you know, I've been using Zoom since I joined the organization. I remember I, w I left uh, another um, not-for-profit to take the helm at uh, Opportunity Canada in November 2018. And I had my first staff meeting by Zoom when there were 14 faces around the screen. And I remember going into that thinking, how is this possibly going to work? But it was interesting within five minutes, it's like I didn't even notice, you know, I was on, on a computer. It, it kind of felt like you're around the table and you know, the fact you can see people's faces and, and share. So, I mean, it does have some limitations, but it's been great for us. It's allowed us to operate in three time zones right across the country. And uh, we have staff meetings, team meetings, group meetings, meetings with donors, and everything is done, you know, on Zoom. So that, you're absolutely right. We didn't really have to pivot in that regard. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about your fundraising models and, and then maybe how, how you deploy that capital or cash flow to, to help serve your mission. Sure. Um, you know, we are a charity, so all of our operations are funded through fundraising. Uh, people make donations to Opportunity International Canada. They do receive a tax receipt for that. Uh, we are largely focused on what we call uh, the major donor and corporate partner side of things, as well as uh, events. We have a small number of uh, what we call smaller monthly donors that also help, you know, their people who just uh, believe in what we do and maybe, you know, give us $50 a month or something like that. But the, the lion's share of our work is really focused on entrepreneurs, uh, business people, people who really understand the idea of microfinance, the power of it. And, um, and so our fundraising model is largely uh, relational. Um, it's presenting the concept of opportunity. Often we look for ways to give people an experience. We conduct these uh, visits to the field that we call insight trips, where 10 to 15 um, you know, people will, will join a staff member and head down for five days uh, to one of the countries where we serve, have a chance to meet our microfinance institute partner there as well as uh, meet some clients and hear their stories firsthand. Nobody who attends one of those comes back unchanged. It, it can be just incredibly inspiring and, and impactful to see. So we look for a variety of ways. We have a powerhouse fundraising team, very proud of them. They've, uh, they've pivoted, you know, at the beginning of March, uh, when it was obvious that things were being shut down, I called a staff meeting and I said, look, all travel's canceled. All of our events are gonna have to go virtual. Uh, you guys are going to have to think your way through this and find a way to either virtualize existing events or come up with completely different concepts. All of your meetings with donors are not going to be over coffee anymore. They're going to be by Zoom. And they've jumped into that with so much passion and enthusiasm. Um, great team led by the VP of Philanthropy, Doris Olofsson, who's, who lives out in BC. And she has a team of directors across the country who work by province. And they've done amazing things. They took a, a Calgary golf event and they changed it. They said it's not a divot, it's a pivot. And actually did an hour-long online golf event where we went hole by hole. It was all virtualized, telling different stories about the work we do. But what was interesting is we had more people attend that than would actually show up at a golf event. So, and it was actually quite engaging and inspiring. And the, the next thing they're doing is they're actually doing a virtual insight trip. So in August, uh, we're gonna give our you know, donors an experience that they will not forget. They can buy first class, business class, economy seats. Um, they're gonna get an experience box in the mail that kind of connects them with the countries we serve. And, and we're gonna visit all of the countries where we serve. So Haiti, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Honduras, Colombia, India and Ghana. And 
uh, over about a 80 minute period, it's going to be quite an immersive experience. And what's interesting for me is that I think we'll probably retain that post pandemic because we expect 250 people to participate in this. Whereas, you know, we can maybe in best of time bring 15 down on, on an actual real inside trip. We'll still do those, of course, but for now, I'm just really proud of the team. So, you know, the, the job of fundraising, as you know, is to connect the inspiration of the mission itself, the, the changed lives that happen because of this work with people that have the resources to help us make it happen. So our donors are really partners in this work. We couldn't do it without them. They, uh, in some ways, were like an extension of them. This is their vision, and we help carry it out by designing these programs in the field. So we raise money uh, through private donations, through corporate partners. We have corporations who will choose to work with us um, because it gives an opportunity for their employees to directly engage in something meaningful. It's a bit of a CSR commitment, um, but this can be very uh, an engaging experience for employees, which... If you've read the book, Corporate Karma, you know, is a really important part of the sort of bottom line. There's more than just, uh, you know, dollar profits, but there's uh, what's the purpose of the company from the point of view of giving back to society. And so I look at us as providing an opportunity to companies to have a, have a social meaning and social impact in addition to the very important profit uh, goals that they have as well. But we also run, as I've said, a series of events. These funds come in. And we, uh, we use them to work in the countries where we serve. So I've mentioned a number of those countries and the funds can either be used as loans. So we'll, we'll send loan funds down. It'll be an asset that sits with a microfinance partner. Everywhere we work, we partner with a, a local organization, a microfinance institution. Uh, they, are, they are always uh, either an NGO or a co-op bank. They exist to serve the poor and their values aligned with us. And so we work with them. We'll provide access to loan funds. So maybe transfer down, you know, $250,000 of, of loan funds, which becomes an asset. Those funds are then loaned out. Um, they have a series of uh, relationship and loan officers who um, almost like a combination banker and social worker who are uh, out in the field connecting with our clients who are sometimes the, the you know, the poorest of the poor but they have an idea and they just need access to some funds. So these funds become a part of that loan portfolio. In addition, we'll send down a, a funds that can be used for uh, operations like uh, training, uh, maybe a branch expansion. We'll partner with these organizations to help them expand their reach into rural communities so that you can reach you know, more people that, uh, with, with the work we do. And then design training programs. So all the clients who receive loans also receive training in financial literacy. Sometimes, depending on the country, it'll be other things like hygiene and nutrition and you know, other life skills that are important, but also how to run a business, how to market, how to, how to grow your business, how to be an employer. And, uh, and so you know, those funds will basically help hundreds or thousands of small um, working poor to start their own business, generate an income so they can provide for their families. That's remarkable. And Dan, just before we get into coronavirus, can you give us a, a bit of background on yourself? Like, how did you get into the role that you're in today, leading the Canadian operation for Opportunity International? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, this role for me feels like the convergence of everything I've done in my career up to this point. My background is actually electrical engineering. I did a bachelor and master's in electrical engineering at the University of Waterloo. I started working in the hearing aid industry, got my master's degree, and then uh, left, joined the Foreign Service. 
but before I'd left the hearing aid company, I'd started a little research group and I was invited back as a founding president of a spin-off tech company. They launched a company in Waterloo, Ontario called DSP Factory, which uh, developed the first generation of digital hearing aids. After about five years, when we had our breakthrough, I just felt that um, you know, I wanted to get involved in the not-for-profit side of things. So I joined an organization in a sort of a second-in-command role to help them with a restructuring. Um, was there for about five years, moved to a national addiction recovery charity, started as their chief operating officer, and then um, became the CEO in 2013. But after seven years at the uh, addiction organization, I knew it was time for a change. And up popped Opportunity International Canada. So I threw my hat in the ring and um, really blessed to have been given the opportunity to lead this amazing team forward to the next level. So uh, that's how I found myself at the helm at OIC. This episode is brought to you by ClearBridge. When Veronica and her team at Northwest Tank Lines were forced to retreat from their office due to COVID-19, she had some concerns. The biggest concern was us having to quickly move from the office into our home remotely and separate from one another. So the communication was the biggest issue and concern for me. Not having that face-to-face -face contact, being in the same room with one another and discussing issues. Despite the concerns of moving their offices remote, Veronica was confident that ClearBridge would support her team. We always know that ClearBridge is just a quick call or a video chat away. So I know if I have issues, they are resolved quickly. I rely on their dedicated team. They are always there to help us. If we run into any issues, we work together to resolve them. Within the last year, we worked together to digitally move our AP, our AR, and our payroll systems over, and it was seamless. So that also helped our transition into working from home. But there was still the issue of communication between Veronica and her staff. So ClearBridge introduced CB Meet, a secure video conferencing software to Northwest Tank Lines. So the big thing for me was the ClearBridge Meet platform. So that allowed us to resolve that issue about communication. We use it daily. We have face-to-face -face contact with our staff so everybody can feel like they're in the same room and we can discuss items regularly. So we communicate frequently that way. It's been great. ClearBridge is helping businesses like Northwest Tank Lines and people like Veronica every day with their business solutions. Find out how ClearBridge can support your team and help you do your best work by checking out lifewithclearbridge.ca. Now back to the show. So let's talk about coronavirus here. Dan, what were your immediate thoughts when coronavirus and COVID-19 started to hit the media and started to have a, a, an impact here in Canada as well as globally? Well, you know, I think like everybody, we in the early days could see it unfolding in China. And somehow in the back of our mind felt this was coming. But still, I don't know, uh, when I could see it all unfolding, I just thought, you know, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, I knew we had to act fast. I, I called our team together on a Zoom call, and that's, you know, as I alluded earlier, I just told everybody, you know, we're going to be canceling all international and domestic travel until this thing settles down. You know, we already know how to work in Zoom, but we're going to have to bring that to everything we do, whether it's partnering with our partners in the countries where we serve, or whether it's, uh, you know, the fundraising activities that, that, that we're engaged in, we're going to have to figure out a way to pivot. I was obviously worried as things started to snowball, and the economy started to shut down. 
we live on donations and many of our donors are hit by this. You know, their, their companies shut down, their revenue is mm. reduced, their wealth is reduced with a hit that the stock market was taking. So there was a fair amount of uncertainty as to what would be the impact for us. Fortunately, we are fairly lean and we had a very strong 2019. So we entered into 2020 in a historically healthy position financially. And, um, you know, we kind of felt like we were on a bit of a, a, a move forward to grow the impact and be able to help, you know, more people with the work we do when suddenly we were hit by COVID. What we have found is that um, we had some strong supporters early on who said, yes, we've been hit, but we're going to stand with you anyway. You know, in other words, they're willing to sacrifice a bit to stand with us. As we've moved along on this journey, we found that there are uh, organizations that are actually thriving in the pandemic and there are other organizations that are really hurting. We've tried to work with our donors with uh, compassion and you know, our first thought is how can we help you? How can we work with you? How can we support you? And, and for those that, that can help us, great. For those that can't, you know, we understand. And so it, it's been interesting to watch. But we, the other pivot we made is that um, our clients and our partners are hurting far more than we are. So yes, this is a health crisis here. It's a health crisis globally. It's also an economic crisis and it's impacted the countries we serve far more dramatically than it has impacted us. And so our microfinance partners are suffering from liquidity and cash flow problems because the thousands of clients they have, you know, can't, can't make loan payments if they're not working. Uh, they can't feed their families if they're not working. And so a lot of the portfolios were frozen. So we had to very quickly adapt as well and say, you know, if all, all the other programs that we were looking at supporting in the coming year, we really just want to back off on those and focus primarily on raising funds to help our partners uh, survive this. And, and our donors responded. So we've actually had a we've had a giving level so far this year that that exceeds giving levels in previous years uh, year to date as people have responded so that we can step in and send funds down to to our partners to help them with their liquidity which which in turn helps them to be there for their clients and there's just been a lot of great stories of clients who are most of our clients are women. A lot of them are, were fairly new clients, say in the Dominican Republic, uh, with a micro leasing program we have there. They had just started their little business, and and they weren't making enough to even make ends meet. And so our partners were putting you know uh, grocery care packages together to provide you know some some food and that sort of thing. So I would say we 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 didn't know what we were facing, and um, we just jumped into it with both feet and delighted to say that our our supporters have been standing with us through it. Thanks for sharing, Dan. So b before the crisis hit, as an organization, what was your biggest challenge? And by your, I mean, for Opportunity International, what was the biggest challenge that you were facing coming into this? Well, yeah, certainly before the pandemic, um, you know, as I've taken on the helm, we as an organization have, you know, we've been at the same more or less level of uh, of mission impact. Uh, if I put in dollar figures, it's in the eight to $10 million a year, about half of that from government funded projects, half of it through privately funded projects. And the real goal for an organization like ours is, you know, how can we do more? The need is so much greater than we're able to meet. And so we were really embarking on a journey of figuring out how we could expand the, the size of our funding base so that we could do more. And we actually launched a new three-year strategic plan in January 
and it was focused on you know restructuring a little bit so that we focused our resources in the best way possible raising more funds and having more mission impact it was as simple as that that's where we <laughs> that's where the, the leadership team was really focusing a lot of their energies we'd we'd launched a brand new uh, what we call a program prospectus that outlined the number of project initiatives we wanted to launch into this year. It was hot off the press in um, February and then COVID hit. So it just, it, it's like running into a wall at that point. You talked a little bit about the shift that you had to make. And I think you alluded to it a bit earlier. In some ways, we're probably all a little bit tired of hearing about, you know, pivot and, and shift mm-hmm. and, and adapt. But I mean, that's ultimately what we're all doing um, and what needs to happen. These are just the new buzzwords of 2020. So can you talk a little bit more about what that has looked like as an organization as you look to serve and continue to provide an impact? How has your business model shifted from what it was or what you thought it was going to be focused on in 2020 to what it is today. Yeah, it's interesting. The word pivot really applies so well because it kind of implies you were moving towards you know, a certain direction and then it very quickly had to turn and, and, and move a slightly different direction. And so like every other organization that's had to uh, address the challenges of COVID, we've had to figure out what that looked like for us. And, uh, you know, the pivot has happened both operationally, it's happened in our fundraising, it's happened in how we target the supports for our clients. It's happened in our partners' lives and it's happened in our clients' lives. So everything that, that we do has actually been impacted by the, uh, and probably more by the economic challenge than, than the health challenge of COVID-19. And so as, I've, you know, as I said before, we had to, we had to stop all of our um, in-person fundraising activities. We, a lot of charities are in the same situation where they had large events planned and they were just canceled. Fortunately, our team is very creative and it, it turned uh, many of our in-person events into online virtual events. And that's continuing throughout the summer. We also are very relational in our fundraising. So you know, what we've found is that people are available, especially in the early days. I think people are a bit tired of hearing about COVID now, but you know, in the, in the early days, uh, if you needed to meet with a donor, you worked for weeks to find a, a time to have lunch or coffee or something. And now it's a, a quick email. Hey, can I meet you over Zoom? And you've got a meeting the next day. We also found that we can do larger events where we uh, can get more people to attend uh, because we're just asking for an hour and a half of their time. It doesn't matter where they live. So it, it's actually enabled us to uh, leverage much greater impact in terms of reaching people with, with the work we do. So, so we've had to pivot on how we fundraise. We've had to, I've stopped a lot of the work that we were doing on our strategic plan and the operation, operationalization of that to focus strictly on keeping, you know, the team, keeping the morale up. Uh, you know, invest, for the first uh, three months of the pandemic, we, we doubled the number of all staff meetings uh, all the various sub teams meet on a regular basis, and I tried to sit in as many of those meetings as I, you know, as I could. Uh, we brought in a, a psychotherapist to to talk to us for an hour on one of our st- staff Zoom calls, just to talk about, you know, healthy ways of dealing with the, the stress of this that everyone was experiencing. We, we, you know, we had to look at our own financial picture and make sure that we were healthy. Um, I was prepared to take a pay cut and do whatever we had to do if we had to do it. Fortunately, up to this point, we haven't had to. We did benefit a little bit from 
the government subsidies on, on the wage side of things uh, for a few months when our fundraising was down. But uh, and since we made our appeal to help our donors or to help our partners rather uh, through this time, the fundraising has been so strong we don't qualify for the for the, uh, the wage subsidy for a few months there. But you know that that's probably good anyway. The work we do in the field is the most important thing. You know, in our when you think about a micro bank serving 15,000 clients and all of a sudden for three months, those clients aren't working. There's a line in, in the work we do that said, stay at home means starve at home. And, you know, because often many of the clients we do have, uh, the work that they do that day is putting the food on the table that night. And so if they can't feed themselves, they're not making loan payments, that's creating, you know, massive financial challenges for our microbank partners because they're not like large banks with huge reserves. <laughs> so the, the loans that they issue and the interest on those loans is what pays the salary of the staff. And, you know, so it's a sustainable model, but when it takes the hit of, of, of the pandemic, it, it's created stresses all along. So that's why we totally pivoted our program orientation towards uh, helping our partners survive through this time. The best thing we can do for our partners is to stand there with them and, and provide the funds they need uh, so that they, you know, they can get those, that money into the hands of their clients so that they can start working again. People have a lot of energy, a lot of drive. They, uh, people that we serve, they've learned how to survive in situations far tougher than any of us could have. I say that if, you know, microfinance is one of the most sustainable ways to journey out of poverty. And if it was important before the pandemic, it's even more important post-pandemic. Uh, there's a risk that this pandemic will introduce more than 100 million people back into uh, severe poverty, the kind of poverty where you know you, you don't have enough to eat. And um, we just we just don't want to see we don't want to lose a decade of gains that were made in poverty reduction. And when we talk about uh, you know how this started to hit us in March, and you know day by day we were. We, we were learning more about the impact that this was having and the impact this was going to have as things started to shut down. And now that uh, we're coming into summer and by the time summer wraps up, we'll be into this for six months as far as, as, as Canada is concerned. What do you see as your greatest challenge when you think out six months or out another 12 months as we start hearing about the second wave or or what this may look like as far as the future of our global economy and uh, banking and lending and just the general change around society as a whole. Yeah, I think we're all sort of in this uh, waiting period to see just how bad it might get with the second wave. We don't know what the economic recovery is going to look like. Nobody does. It's definitely not going to be a V. Certain sectors are thriving. Others are going to, there's going to be permanent structural change and and you know, it's had this whole groups of people that are unemployed that are going to have a real tough time. I think it's going to introduce major social changes, you know, things like a guaranteed minimum income, is, which would have been like politically impossible perhaps to make, you know, even a year ago. Yeah, I, I saw an article where I think uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was recommending, you know, that the Trudeau government actually consider a guaranteed minimum income. Things like the CERB, if we pull them away, uh, and then suddenly people aren't able to pay their rent and put food on the table and not for lack of trying to find a job. So we're probably looking at social structural changes uh, in our country that um, perhaps may be for the better. It depends you know, on your perspective. But um, I, I do believe the economy will re recover. I think people are, entrepreneurs in particular, are very uh, creative and um, you know, we're resilient 
Canada's a resilient country. Uh, you know, I, I, I do believe we'll bounce back. The, the partners that we work with are very resilient as well, our, our supporters and donors. And so I'm, I'm mildly optimistic that we'll make our way through this and be able to kind of keep things together and be there for our partners. But I'm obviously concerned, like everyone else, that if, if there's a, a second wave and if, uh, if the economy continues to lag, that's obviously going to affect our ability to do the work we do. And uh, so in the back of my mind, I'm always concerned about what's that going to mean for us. So we're just trying to stay ahead of the curve. You know, it's, we're not a business, we're a charity. Uh, we need to be as entrepreneurial and uh, creative as anyone else. And so we're, we're doing everything we can. This, you know, virtual inside trip, I think is a brilliant idea that our teams come up with and, uh, and, and I think it's going to tap into resources that we wouldn't otherwise see available. We're, we're looking this fall at doing a number of, of events, uh, sort of a hybrid blend of uh, virtual events and in-person where possible. Uh, there's a whole stream of things called Dine with Dignity, which might be a small group of 10 people getting together and hearing stories about what we do. We've created a video that tells the story of, uh, of another client in a really compelling way that, you know, nothing nothing really communicates what we do better than hearing from one of our clients directly as to how you know the the access to these services has changed their life and made it possible for them to provide for their family so we're just determined not to sit back and wait for the things to hit us we want to get ahead of the curve on this stuff because at the end of the day for us it's the mission like if if we can't do our job here and raise the funds we need to do then our clients are the ones that are going to suffer and we just simply can't let that happen. So we know the resources are out there. Uh, we just have to find different ways to uh, access them <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to turn over every rock and try everything possible that we can um, within the limitations of, you know, of social distancing uh, to get the word out is what we're doing and, uh, and, and grow that base, at least keep the base the same so that we can you know, stand with our partners during this time. So Dan, you've talked a lot about innovation or adapting, pivoting. We use that word a few times. How are you maintaining that mindset as an organization around innovation? Like, how are you rallying your team? Because I know you've got a great team behind you there at Opportunity, but how are you driving that innovative mindset forward on a day-by-day basis inside uh, the organization? So one of the things I, I really find is really important is empowering and encouraging the team that they they already they're way better positioned than I am to come up with the creative ideas that they need. I you know that's their job and uh, and they are a dynamic, uh, creative, energetic, entrepreneurial bunch. And so the best thing I can do sometimes is you know encourage and get out of the way. And uh, and so we do you know we do meet uh, regularly and it and it's you know it's important to celebrate the wins, but. I think everyone in our organization does what we do because we absolutely care about the clients we serve. And I think that's probably what drives the innovation. You have to have a why, right? And and for all of us, our why is any number of clients that we've met personally and seen the difference that the work we do makes in their lives. And we know that if we don't do our job, then they're the ones that are going to be left behind. And so I think that that is the sort of engine of innovation that makes us go that second mile to find that different idea, that different way of doing it. And 
it's not rocket science, but it does require a certain passion and, and a certain drive and a certain commitment. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about the team that I do have. If, I've often said if it, if it depended on the leader, uh, if it depended all on my skills, then we'd be done as an organization. But if you take the, uh, the sum total of the team and the individual skills and contribution that everybody brings, and if you can find a way to set that free, you know, the organization can, can, can be on rocket fuel. The mission drives our team forward. Uh, you know, when you sit on staff calls and, and, and people start sharing client stories, um, the number of tears you see around, around the Zoom screen is, is pretty amazing. And, and this has gotten somewhat personal. Um, you know, we have a, a longtime partner in Nicaragua that we've been working with for about 20 years. In fact, I believe Opportunity Canada's first partnership with a, a microfinance institution was in Nicaragua. And, uh, and the, the CEO is a guy named Juan Duloa who was in his 70s and is considered the dean of uh, microfinance in Latin America. Just a wonderful gentleman, former uh, banking career, decided to shift into the, the not-for-profit sphere to help the poor in his country. And he's had tremendous impact over that 23 years he served at that organization, but COVID took him. He passed away last month from COVID. Mm. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting him last August in Colombia when we got together with the CEOs of all of our Latin American partners. And uh, just a, a wonderful, inspiring man. And, uh, you know, we were working with him on a strategy to kind of rebuild his portfolio because it had been hurt uh, by some of the unrest in Nicaragua two years ago. And um, right up until he was admitted to the hospital, we were looking at a business plan for how to kind of get a local partner back on their feet. And he said, you know, I've got a bit of a flu. Um, uh, I'm going into the hospital. And two weeks later, he was gone, you know, so it, mm. it, it has struck home. Um, and our, our team was devastated because the, the connections go way back. But it's also made us more determined than ever now to preserve his legacy by helping that partner uh, grow and thrive. And uh, so we need to inject a serious, uh, you know, set of funds uh, to help them rebuild their portfolio. And when they rebuild the portfolio, you're talking about thousands of small loans to people who otherwise don't have a chance. And um, I've sort of said, you know, this people will say uh, microfinance is, it's not a handout, it's a hand up. But I've said, you know, it's not even a hand up, it's a handshake because it's really a, a transaction <laughs> between that. equals, right? And, and it's, and the dignity of that is something that I just find unbelievably inspiring. So when we talk about what's next for opportunity, I mean, you've shared some great inspirational stories. I mean, it, you know, there's a whole lot of virtual next. There's uh, perhaps, you know, as you're, as you're enabled to, there's some, some, you know, resumption of physical gatherings or, or meetings as, as, you're, as you're able to. What's got you most excited when we think about the future of Opportunity International Canada? You know, I, I, I want us to um, hit our mission uh, far beyond what people think we're capable of. I don't believe we've come close to uh, scratching the surface of, of what Opportunity Canada is capable of doing as part of uh, the global movement here. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited for us to build on the platform of success we've had uh, to see some more significant um, government-funded projects like the, the massively transforming project we've been running in Ghana for the last three years. Um, and, and kind of building on the success of that. I want to see our fundraising team 
probably double the level of fundraising that they're able to accomplish. And the whole point of that, of course, is so that we can just have a much greater footprint um, of impact and see more lives changed. So microfinance uh, has this incredibly leveraging power. And we've seen it now uh, venture, you know, outs, what I would call moving laterally as well as vertically. So vertically, you know, down into the ultra pores I talked about in Haiti, but also up into what we call micro SMEs where, you know, it's a small business, uh, a small to medium sized enterprise uh, micro level where we're helping one person run organizations grow so that they are able to hire three or four of their neighbors. And there's, there's one of my colleagues has a saying that is, you know, not everyone's an entrepreneur, but everyone needs a job. And so you move up the economic ladder to create jobs and communities, but, but it also branches out into sector specific area. The, the power of microfinance has over the last uh, eight to nine years has leveraged a, a dramatic growth in schools in areas where there was no access to education. It's created uh, opportunities for uh, several million students, uh, over 5 million kids so far been able to access a quality education that they couldn't otherwise just by uh, helping a small entrepreneur start a little private school in a, a rural area. These people aren't doing it to get rich, they're doing it to bring educational services to their communities. We find the same thing in agri-finance, you know, we're small landhold uh, farmers that have, you know, just a, a few acres but by investing in them with small loans and with uh, access to aggregate better technologies, they can dramatically increase their crop yields and as a result, you know, provide for their families and grow. We've seen the same thing in the health sector, providing health services to remote communities by tapping into the microfinance channels that are already in place. Uh, women, typically in places like India and Haiti, you know, are trained in basic first level healthcare. They also are, are selling things like uh, they, they manufacture their own sanitary napkins and can sell those, which has a dramatic impact on, um, on local health as well. And so they, these become sustainable, right? These women generate their own revenue, but they're also bringing healthcare services to millions of people in, in rural settings. We're addressing things like a refugee camp. You know, you don't think of a refugee camp as having a local economy. But some of these refugee camps are almost like cities. They've been there for 20 years and they have a, an incredibly vibrant local economy and a microfinance can help people you know, move forward with their own uh, financial independence. The youth bulge, you know, there's a massive demographic shift in Africa in particular where teens, um, you know, outnumber adults and uh, as they graduate from school, there's no jobs. And so how do you provide microfinance opportunities for uh, for young people, you know, to start their own businesses and move forward. Climate change, you know, how do you help uh, the poor be resilient in the face of dramatic climate events, you know, and so there's a lot of work being done on uh, on resiliency and, and finding ways to, you know, use predictive technologies to look at maybe emerging drought areas and, and so you can be smarter in how you're working with, with farmers. So it's just a lot of really innovative things and we just want to be a part of that and, and we want to um, be part of the solution going forward. So for those that are listening and Dan, maybe they're struggling in their organization, maybe it's a not-for-profit, but maybe they haven't found a way to pivot or to shift or innovation's just been really tough for them to come about. What suggestions or resources have you used or could you recommend uh, to those listeners? That's a great question because I think for me that, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the team that I had, I think we'd be in a much different situation. So I inherited a great team. And since I've been here, I've been trying to add to that and 
build that team and strengthen them and pour into them. So, uh, you know, I, I suppose my best advice would be pour into your people and um, together, you know, you're going to find the answers. If, if you're trying to do it all on your own, um, you know, I just don't think that that's going to be successful. Dan, I think that's a remarkable recommendation, especially at a time like this. When we look at the businesses that are really thriving out there and even the ones that are surviving and maybe shouldn't, they're beating the odds. I think the, the common thread that, uh, you know, that I've observed is the investment into people and, and reliance on people and their ideas and just showing up every day, you know, and asking the question, Hey, what, what can I do? How can I help? And, uh, and I think the human aspect is, is really a, an important one as we talk about, uh, innovation and, and of course resilience so and that's i think that's the best hope for canada going forward too right just figuring out a way to tap into that um, I, I, I just love the um, a lot of the changes that have been coming about or at least the pressures for change around uh, you know, black lives matter and diversity challenges that people seem to fear uh, diversity but you know i believe if you open up opportunities for people that haven't had access to it it actually causes the economy to grow and it creates more opportunities for everybody right so it's it's not a zero sum game i think people tend to look at things like it's a zero sum game it's either i get the opportunity or you get the opportunity but i think if we all get the opportunity the the pie grows and everybody gets a chance to, to kind of move forward so and it's very much about people and dignity and you know empowering folks so they feel like they have a seat at the table absolutely well hey dan thanks for being on the show two final questions for you the first one is how can we support opportunity international if someone's listening they want to get involved what's the best way to get involved well certainly you know go to our website which is opportunityinternational.ca and there's lots of information there um, there are events that are taking place across the country you know typically ontario and westward although now with many of the events being virtual there's no geographic limitation uh, to participation in, in many of them but get on the website there's a just a wealth of information there that you can read to learn more uh, reach out to me or anyone else if you want questions and you know as you try to do your own research on the work that we're doing and of course we're always happy to take a donation uh, but for us you know the donation is just part of the journey we we really like to partner with people who believe in what we're doing and and find ways that we can you know help you to experience the amazing impact of, of helping to change lives around the world so yeah go online if there's a, an event that's taking place in your region uh, that you want to join in and, and learn a bit more um, that'll be you know you'll meet a few people and hear some stories and, and that'll help you to understand even more what we're doing love that so, thank yeah. thanks dan and so uh last question uh what's the best way for people to reach you if they want to connect with with you dan well uh certainly uh, send me an email if you want it's uh, dmurray at opportunityinternational.ca uh, happy to respond uh, to an email you can also uh, go on our website and and use the contact us facility there and say you want, you'd like to reach out to me. Um, Great. I'm, uh, you know, I'm an open door. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate uh, you taking the time today. Hey, Ryan, thanks for having me uh, on your show. And uh, it's, uh, it's great to be able to chat. And I do look forward to meeting again in person once, uh, once we're allowed to do that. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneurs versus Coronavirus podcast with your host, Ryan Kononoff. For complete show notes and additional information, visit clearbridge.ca slash podcast. Ryan is the founder of Clearbridge Business Solutions. To find out how investing in technology can help your business, especially during uncertain economic times, visit lifewithclearbridge.ca. Connect with Ryan on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Ryan Kononoff. 
That's R-Y-A-N-K-O-N-O-N-O-F-F. Thanks for listening.